0: God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your presence here this morning. Lord, I thank you for, very specifically, I thank you for the psalm this morning. It's a psalm that seems like my own soul. It's it's quite up and it's quite down. Every other verse, it seems to be in utter despair or else a glimmer of hope. And the psalmist leads to this place where he asks for you, God, to draw near and to save. To deliver us from our enemies, even as they offer us gall, bitter wine. Vinegar to drink. Father, we know that Christ embodied this psalm in ways that we are utterly incapable, it seems like, most days to be able to live into, which is to bring all of our heartache and our despair and our joys and our hopes and our sorrows and our persecutions and our own Wretchedness, Lord, we we don't bring ourselves to you with a whole heart, and yet Christ bore our sins. He came before you. He bore them for us. He drank from the bitter cup for us. And so, Lord, this morning, with the psalmist, we put our hope and our faith in you. We put our hope and faith in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the psalm. He is the one who can hold us and save us and redeem us. So, Lord, give us wisdom this morning by your Spirit and confidence by your Spirit to see him, to trust him, to not despair, and to fall upon your mercy and grace anew. We need you. We need you to make that happen in our hearts this morning by faith. Would you do that? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're continuing in the book of Romans. And I just now realized that I came up right before that reading. Would you come up and read that for us, please? That would be very helpful. See, this is what happens when you're thinking about 20 things at the same time, Scott, which I know you're doing that way more than me. So hear from Romans chapter 5 from Miss Paula. Thank you.
1: Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given Through the one man Jesus Christ therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous the word of the Lord
0: thanks be to God that is our sermon text this morning If you haven't already opened Romans 5, I encourage you to do that. Just just before uh, where Paula read for us in verse 12, um, that's where our sermon text begins. In verse 10, this is from last week. This is is a verse at the very end of last week which makes the turn to uh, what we're going to focus on here briefly this morning. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So that's where I want to focus this morning on this idea of much more. So we're going to unpack that this morning. There's a whole lot more to the gospel than we imagine. Now you and I, we have a problem. I'm not going to I'm going to try to argue that you have the same problems as me. I don't want to put my problems on you. But generally, we have an imagination problem in and around the church in America. And it's a twofold imagination problem. Our capacity to receive the gospel is limited by the way that we think about the gospel, our imaginations. And I'm not talking about what God can do for us. What he can accomplish, I think many of us have a very high, we have a very high uh, theology of God's sovereignty, and he can do anything. Our imagination problem concerns what God has accomplished, what he has accomplished, and then, not just in the past, what he is accomplishing in us, what the gospel actually produces. So I want to have a little bit of history here at the beginning, which I'm going to come back to later in the sermon. Nearly all of us are and have always been Protestants. There might be a few Roman Catholics in here. I don't really think so, but maybe, maybe there are. Uh, we're, we're, most of us are Protestants in various forms. So in his English literature in the 16th century, C.S. Lewis describes the beginning of the Protestant church or Protestantism as a either a recovery Lewis says it's a recovery or a development or an exaggeration of what? What does Lewis say? It's either recovery or a development or an exaggeration of Pauline theology. Paul's letters. So if you're with me, what he's saying is most of us have been raised in a church where Paul's letters are really highly esteemed, right? That's that's what I cut my teeth on in scripture. And that's good. It's good. Now, Lewis is humble. He's a good historian, so he doesn't make up his mind. He doesn't make up our minds for us, but for me, maybe it's because I'm not a humble historian, or I'm just talking really about my experience, and I think for many of us, we have grown up with an exaggeration of Paul's theology. So it's not, it's not primarily, I think for a lot of us, a recovery or else a development of Paul's theology, it's an exaggeration. So I'm going negative here. just <laughs> I'm, I'm picking the negative option here. I think I can argue that, and I will here in just a moment. So what do I think that we exaggerate about Paul's theology? What specifically, according to Romans chapter 5? So the first imagination problem is an exaggeration problem. So you and I, this is how I would articulate this this theology that we can begin to exaggerate. You and I can do nothing. We're pretty familiar with this. We're good Protestants. We can do nothing. We have no strength in ourselves. We can and never will do anything good. Or as Lewis goes on to summarize, all the initiative is God's side. It's not my side. It's God's side. All has been free, unbounded grace from him to us. My own puny and ridiculous effort, Lewis says, is helpless. It's helpless to retain the joy of salvation just as much as my own ridiculous effort would have been to achieve my salvation so I can't retain my salvation by effort and I can't achieve my salvation in the first place by effort this is Lewis's articulation now thankfully we cannot and this is true we cannot earn our salvation and we don't have to and this is the good news it's the gospel for us this morning we don't have to earn our salvation Lewis says it is faith alone that has saved us, faith bestowed by sheer gift. This should be familiar to you, by sheer gift. And from this buoyant humility, this Protestant humility, Lewis says, from this farewell to myself, I'm giving up on all of my strength, this farewell to self, all the Protestant doctrines originally sprang. that's kind of a historical articulation with what you and I, I think, grew up with mostly in the church. Or as Paul said earlier in this letter, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God came to redeem sinners. We don't earn it. We don't earn it at the start or along the way. We don't earn it. It's all God's sheer grace, At the end of our reading. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's you and that's me. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you've heard this before. I hope you've heard this before. Believe this this morning. This is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus. Some people call this the great exchange. It would be like, I have a great debt to pay, and someone comes and pays that debt for me. If I'm a child, I want to buy this pack of gum, and my parent buys that pack of gum for me. I didn't earn it because I've been a bad kid all day or whatever, and then they come buy the gum for me. Or else, maybe, maybe you can think of, I've been eating salty all the time, and I'm just a salty guy, but the sweetness of the gospel comes and fixes all of my saltiness. Or maybe you're a Star Wars nerd and you think about the dark side and the light side triumphs or something like that. Maybe you're a math nerd and you think about both sides of the equation have to be balanced. I think this is, this is where we're at in our imagination. Or as I read in verse 10, God reconciled dead people to himself by the death of his son. This is the great exchange, one for the other. So here is our imagination problem. It's not just that we say, I can do nothing. We're really good at that. I can do nothing. We exaggerate this emphasis and we make the turn to I am nothing. I can do nothing versus I am nothing. Continuing in verse 12 of our reading. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. This is, this is in summary, the doctrine of original sin. It's that we are all Totally, utterly helpless. And many of us hear a text like this and we're prone to exaggerate that doctrine or else misinterpret our own sinfulness. Some of us have been taught this exaggeration explicitly and some of us have just heard it because we're pretty, pretty quick to say that I am nothing. We've understood the Protestant recovery of the doctrines of original sin or else total depravity so we have original sin and total depravity and that means for us i am worthless and i am completely depraved rather than totally depraved i am completely and utterly depraved i don't really have to be taught to exaggerate my sinfulness i don't know about you i don't need help i don't need help doing that but i've been helped along by myself and by many others for many many years In exaggerating my shame or else my feelings of worthlessness. In Christ, we all began this way. In in many ways, we began with this conviction of sin. This is the beginning of the gospel. But I don't need help to stay there. I don't need help to stay there in my head. Many of us have been taught that total depravity means complete depravity or else Not only does my sin and our sinfulness get into every part of our lives. This is the doctrine of total depravity or else original sin. There's no part of us that sin does not taint. that does not affect us. But we make the turn to this idea that every part of me is completely and utterly depraved or else worthless. I am nothing. This is one of my favorite hymns. And I'm trying to, I'm rethinking it this week a lot. I am nothing but sin, is one of the lines. I am nothing but sin. There's an exaggeration there. Now hear this. Before I move on, and I qualify, and I try to bring us out of this exaggeration. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not come to die for you because you are worthy to receive his grace. You should be a Protestant, I think. (laughs) Now Catholics think that too. So the Orthodox, this is all throughout the church from the beginning. We're not worthy. We are not worthy in ourselves to receive the free gift of his righteousness. But that doesn't mean you're worthless. We go from one to the other for a lot of reasons. Okay. So there's an exaggeration problem. And now we're going to make the turn towards the second of our imagination Problems with the gospel that Paul addresses here in our text. It's not primarily that we just simply exaggerate our own sinfulness. We go from I have nothing to I am nothing. It's that we stop. We stop at this part of the story. Christ died to pay the price for my sin, and I am forgiven. That's where we stop. In Adam, in Christ... This is the great exchange. The great algebra equation has been solved, so the gospel is done with me. That's the gospel. That's where I rest. This is what I rehearse. All my saltiness is now sweet in Christ. Boom. The exchange, right? That's where I'm at. I'm sinful. Christ is righteous. That is the gospel. That's where we stop. But, Paul says in verse 15, but the free gift, ...is not like the trespass. It's not like the trespass. So, if we were were to articulate this even more, according to Romans chapter 5... ...in Adam all sinned and all died, but in Christ all are made alive. And just before this reading, Paul just said that Adam was a type of the one who was to come... So Adam and new Adam, it seems to be great exchange, one for the other. They are very much like each other. That's what it seems like. The free gift is like the trespass. So why does Paul say it's not like the trespass? Look at verse 15 again. But the free gift is not like the trespass for if many died through one man's trespass, much more. Have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So pause for a second there. Does that still sound to you like great exchange language? It does to me. It seems very much like he's saying it's not like this, but he just seems like it's it's like for like one for the other. Doesn't it seem like exchange? He paid the cost. He bought the gum that I could not afford. Kids, that's that seems what he's saying. One trespass brought condemnation. One free gift brought justification. It seems like a, a, a one for one or a like for like, doesn't it? Now, I don't want you to be lost with a lot of familiar language. Um, one of my professors, he puts, he, he wrote in his commentary on this text, there's a bunch of familiar terms in this text. Paul piles up a bunch of terms, so it makes it really confusing for us. There's just a lot of Bible language that we're pretty familiar with. There's grace, and there's gift, and there's abundance, and there's on repeat, and there's different forms and cognates of that word. It's over and over again, a bunch of this stuff. It's all familiar language, but there's more. And Paul says much more three times in chapter 5. What is the much more? What is the thing that is not like the trespass? Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you're still probably hearing that That's great exchange language. And hear me, it is that, but it is much, much more than that. It's more than just we're resetting the playing field so the story can be on level ground. It's, it's more than yin and yang. It's more than balance of the force or whatever uh, analogy you can have in your head. It's even more, and this is a bold way to say it, it's even more than Jesus paid it all. It's, it, goes, it goes past that. It doesn't stop there. Much more, Paul says... Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, they receive this righteousness that they don't deserve, much more will they reign in life. Yes, Jesus paid it all. Yes, Jesus reversed the curse in Adam. Yes, his righteousness is exchanged for my sinfulness and for your sinfulness. This is the beginning of the story. It is the great exchange, but much more on the other side of redemption. You are invited in the gospel to reign in life, to reign in life. Or in other words, another way to translate this is life has now been crowned as king. Life reigns. Life has become king. The gospel is not just the great exchange. It's not just one for one, like for like. The gospel is God's answer. It is this. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, but much more, life has now become king. Now. So looking to the Protestant reformers, specifically Lewis is reflecting on William Tyndale and Martin Luther who came a little bit later. Lewis describes... The buoyant humility of the reformers he describes the buoyant humility of the reformers, and this is something we need to reclaim. this is not a this is not primarily a patristic retrieval. this is a reformed retrieval. So hear me, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, Lewis says, it's not simply all about my puny and ridiculous efforts. That's Lewis's words. It's not about just beating yourself up and saying I'm worthless and I, all I have is God. It's not just that. He goes on to say, quote, that it must be clearly understood. This is what Tyndale and Luther and others said, that it must be clearly understood that original sin and total depravity were at first doctrines not of terror, but of joy and hope, of joy and hope. And Lewis says, more than hope, fruition, more than hope, fruition. What does that mean? It's as if Lewis is following Paul's argument, which we looked at last week in earlier in Romans five, there is a true hope that comes on the other side of suffering, a hope that is against hope, a hope that can conquer and knock down the walls of our anguish anguish and our pain and our suffering, but more than hope, more than hope, not simply something out in the future, not hope something way out there, more than hope. It's hope breaking into the present. This is what Lewis says. It's come to fruition. It is being completed now. And he goes on to say, Tyndale says it like this. The converted man is already tasting eternal life. He's already tasting the reign of life. Life is already crowned as king. It's now become king. Origen, writing in the third century, puts it like this. Not only will death cease to reign in those who receive the abundance of grace, so here's the great exchange. Not only this, who receive the abundance of grace, but two additional benefits will be given to them. The first, Christ will reign in them by his life. He will reign in them by his life. And secondly, they will reign along with Christ. And this is not a future reality. It's breaking into the present. So we are not merely forgiven today, and someday way out, in, way, way out in the future, we will have eternal life. We are invited to taste eternal life right now. Right now. Christ is alive. Life has been crowned king. Reigns right now. He reigns in life in us, and we reign with Christ now. Much more, not just in the future, much more right now. This is the completion of the gospel story. Who am I going to quote next? You guys know John Chrysostom. <laughs> I, I literally cut paragraphs of him out of this. So um, here we go. This is, this is Chrysostom. He just says it way better than I could ever say it. Christ did not merely do the same amount of good that Adam did of harm. So it's it's not just a balancing of the scales. He didn't do the same amount of good that Adam did of harm, but far more and greater good. And this is is an early church and it is a Protestant Reformation clear teaching about original sin, about What God is doing in Christ. Chrysostom goes on to say he gives us not just a medicine sufficient to heal the wound of sin. So it's not just get us to a place of equilibrium or something like that. But also, and on top of that, he gives us health and beauty and honor and glory and dignity. So it's not just canceling the debt that we couldn't pay. He he gives us much more. His life is now reigning in us, and that's manifest in health and beauty and honor and glory and dignity that Christ gives to you. This is part of the gospel. Far transcending, Chrysostom says, far transcending our natural state. When Christ saves us, There is not a trace of death left. So it's it's not just bringing back to equilibrium. It is so much more than that. It's much more. Much more shall we be saved by his life, Paul says. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man jesus christ so here's the turn Hear this protestant christian you are not worthless you are made healthy and alive and beautiful and honorable And glory and dignity are restored to you now. This is not just a future hope. It's a now reality in Christ. The gospel isn't only about healing our wounds and forgiving our sins. It's about life. And we are familiar with this. That God would give us abundant life here in the present. This is the language of John's gospel over and over again. God is restoring us to reign in life. That life would take the throne today in our lives. So quickly, before I conclude, what does much more actually look like? Okay. What does it actually mean? What practically, what does it actually mean to reign in life? We are going to answer that through the rest of the summer. In Romans, whether or not I preach every Romans text from here on out through the rest of the summer, I don't know what Scott's going to preach next, next Sunday. It could be Romans 6. It might not, it might not be. I have no idea. But I'm going to give you two little samples of what's coming, what's coming here in the next couple of weeks, something to hang your hat on. What does it mean to actually reign in life presently? One from Romans chapter 6 and then one from Romans chapter 7. From Romans chapter 6, what does it mean to reign in life? It means to be an obedient slave. Look with me at verse 16 of Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So hear this, Protestant Christian. Consider yourself enslaved to righteousness. You're bound to righteousness. Imagine yourself, and I encourage you to close your mind, imagine yourself that you are chained. You are chained to Christ. Do you feel like you want to explode in anger do you want to give into despair and shame and destructive thoughts that that false narrative that says that i am nothing that i'm worthless don't do it you're chained to christ you are not a slave to tormenting thoughts anymore you are a slave to christ you're not free anymore so you're enslaved to righteousness to christ or you're enslaved to your tormenting thoughts. Who are you going to chain yourself to? Who are you going to chain yourself to? You have to chain yourself to somebody. You're not a slave of sin. You are enslaved to the righteous king. So imagine yourself this week, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, imagine yourself chained to christ but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of god the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in in its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord you're enslaved to him you will here's here's the thing You will be an obedient slave. Don't be mastered. Don't be mastered by your tormenting thoughts, by the attacks of the evil one, by enemies within and without. Go read Psalm 69 over and over again. You'll either be enslaved to sin and death or obedience and righteousness. These are the choices. You will not feel like doing right all the time. You will not feel alive, but imagine yourself chained to Christ. This is the present reality that you have in him and with him so that you can fight to reign in life, that life would rule in your hearts by faith this week. And finally, Romans chapter seven. How can we how can we enter into this much more reality that's breaking into the present? Be humble, be humble And do not despair. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 7. I don't understand my own actions, Paul says. I don't do what I want. Anybody been there? But I do the very thing I hate. So even, even as in those moments where you're you're given to be chained to your sin and your suffering and all the attacks and all the all the vicious thoughts even there and you fail utterly at it even then i do what i don't want to do i want to believe lord i want to believe and you do the things you are you hate you are not worthless you are not a failure you're simply walking in the faith with the apostle paul you're struggling in hardship C.S. Lewis wrote this in a letter. If and when, if and when a horror turns up, you will then be given grace to help you. In that moment, if and when, and I love that he says when, when a horror confronts you, then, and he puts a capital on the G, I love that. God, who is himself grace, he manifests himself in that moment. He comes in our moment of horror. He will give grace to help you. I don't think one is usually given it in advance, Lewis says. So don't worry about tomorrow. Just worry about today. Give us today our daily bread, Lewis exhorts us. This applies not to just bread, but to spiritual gifts also. We need daily support. We need daily support for the daily trial, and God will show up even when we fail. Be humble and do not despair because because life reigns now. Grace reigns on the throne. Life has become king. And so in Christ, we are invited to call out, Abba, Father, help, help me in my time of need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.